issue on everyone's mind today is the grand jury decision that came from Ferguson, Missouri, regarding the Michael Brown case. And my friends, I've heard a lot of talk, a lot of talk, a lot of analysis, everyone wanting to get their point across, Monday morning quarterback and all that kind of stuff. But you know what I'm not hearing? I'm not hearing a lot of solutions. I'm not hearing any way forward. So in this half hour show, we're going to talk solutions to help us, but to help us understand first, because we got to understand what happened. But then we're going to talk some solutions. But I want to check in first with our official criminal justice correspondent, Dr. Angie Swan, who is professor of criminal justice at Grand Canyon University. Dr. Swan also was a police officer in both the Phoenix and Goodyear Police Departments. So if there's anyone who can give us an interesting and informed perspective about this, uh, it is her. So, Professor, you're on vacation right now, but you agreed to come on the show. How are you today? Are you there? Do we have her? Is she coming up? She's coming. <laughs> All right. Do we have her? She dropped. All right. Well, she's got to get back. Well, we're going to have her on in just a moment because I want her to tell you and give, give us her analysis of this because I highly respect her and think she's very intelligent. But before we do, in fact, do we have her now? Yeah. Okay. She's coming up. Angie, are you there? Professor Swan, can you hear me? Yes, yes, I'm here. All right, how are you today? I'm great, how are you? I'm doing well, you're on vacation this week. Yes, yes. Are you enjoying yourself? Yeah, yeah, I am. It's a little cold up here for me since I'm used to Arizona, but other than that, it's great. Good, good. Well, listen, you are a professor of criminal justice at Grand Canyon University. You've also been a police officer at several departments here in the Valley. Give us a brief recap of what the decision coming out of Ferguson was about. What exactly was decided yesterday? Okay, so I'm assuming the basics have been covered then with what the situation is, right? Well, just give us what happened. Tell us what happened. Okay. Um, well, okay. Well, I'll back up here. So, so the situation, I guess most people know, is that we have this white police officer, Darren Wilson, who shot and killed Michael Brown uh, during the course of his duties. And this was last August. So, on that day, and in the days immediately following that, there was there was a good deal of unrest in the black community there. And this was mostly because some of the witnesses that were right there at the shooting were saying that when Michael Brown was shot, he was surrendering, or he had his hands in the air, and it looked like he was surrendering to the officer. So in the weeks that followed this, we had pretty much no evidence that came out of this investigation that was for public consumption, other than those initial witness statements uh, so that, from the local area. Right, so that gave rise to a lot of speculation and a lot of stuff running right. on social media. And then, so fast forward then, um, so tell us what happened yesterday. Okay, well, between then and now, there was a grand jury that was convened. Um, early, early in the investigation, I think the first week, the county prosecutor there for St. Louis decided that he really needed to let the people of Missouri weigh all the evidence that they had once the investigation uh, was going on and decide if Officer Wilson should even be arrested. So he put it to a grand jury. The grand jury's decision came back last night, and they, they came back not to indict. So the jury, um, it consisted of what is essentially like a cross-section of the Missouri demographics. So you've got seven men, five women, nine whites and three blacks, and their job was to hear all of this evidence and weigh everything that they had available to them and make this decision as to whether or not there was probable cause 
that this officer may have committed a crime. So, so this wasn't a finding of guilt or innocence. Right. So the decision wasn't a finding of guilt or innocence. It was simply determined probable cause. And then if had there been an indictment, then they would have moved forward to a trial. Right. He would have been arrested on whatever charge it was they found probable cause for, and they would have moved forward with a trial. Now, there are some who say the prosecutor should have avoided the grand jury altogether and just proceeded to file charges against Officer Wilson right away, and that perhaps it was a tactic to prevent Officer Wilson from going to trial to maybe get the grand jury involved. Why would he have chosen to go the grand jury route? Well, you know, different states utilize the grand jury in different ways. Some use them quite often, some don't use them at all. But I think in this case, the prosecutor, he'd already been hearing from the community that they thought he was pro-police and that his his decision, no matter what it was, was going to be biased. So in the interest of saving face, he wanted to put it to the people to really decide. And I think that that was ultimately a smart move for him. Right. So that way he could kind of disperse the responsibility to the grand jury and not make it look like it was only him that was responsible for this. Exactly. Now, the Huffington Post came out right away and criticized the way that the county prosecutor, Robert McCulloch, presented the grand jury decision. They called it bizarre, baffling, unwieling and inflammatory. Um, and that's what actually what they said in one of the articles. I, I'd ask you if you were about ready to go out and to announce to the world a decision of this magnitude, knowing the crowds are outside, knowing the world's watching, knowing what the reaction would be, uh, what would you, Professor Swan, what would you have done differently? You know, honestly, I saw his statement, I thought it was great. And I probably wouldn't have done anything differently. Mm-hmm. I think the way that he took his time in explaining to everybody the detail of exactly what occurred, um, I think that really laid it out for people in a way that they should have been able to understand that that justice was served in this case. And the process, the grand jury proceeding, went forward as it should have, and it came back with a decision that it was going to come back with. So, Well, I obviously you're looking at someone who was in a very difficult place, and you, you see him, and how many hours it must have been going through all of this and, and knowing that this decision was going to have huge implications. And it seemed like he spent a great deal of time trying to convince the public that they had really done all they could do in regards to gathering the evidence and presenting it and going through and interviewing the witnesses. And so it was almost really setting people up for what would be this announcement that that surely there would not be an indictment. Sure. And it, it probably did kind of take the sting off a little bit the way he did kind of set the pace there. I think you said that you expected what was coming, and I did too. And, you know, another interesting part of this is that most grand jury proceedings are completely secret, and that includes what the vote was, what witnesses testified, what evidence was that they saw, and it stays that way forever. But in this specific case, they actually made a point to release all of the evidence to everybody, I think just in the interest of, of having this transparency so that everybody could really see, here's the evidence that we had, this is the evidence that the grand jury saw, and at this point you can really make up your own minds, but essentially hoping that it shows them there really was no basis to indict this officer. We're talking with Dr. Angela Swan, who is a professor of criminal justice at Grand Canyon University, also a former police officer. And Dr. Swan, I want to take it a little bit of a different direction for a moment, because so much of the backstory here, regardless of whether or not Officer Wilson should have been indicted, what the backstory is here is this reveals a profound mistrust between law enforcement and, in this case, the community of Ferguson, and as we reach out into the wider, broader scope of things, a profound mistrust between law enforcement and many communities across America, especially minority communities. 
I want to ask you, as a former police officer, where does that mistrust come from? Did you experience that uh, in your time as an officer? You know, I absolutely did. And I, I saw this incredible tension between police and the minority communities. Uh, when I was a brand new officer on patrol, I was in a really rough part of inner city Phoenix, um, close to the airport down there. And it became really clear to me right away that not only the adults in this community, but, but the kids too, they just plain hated us. Even really young kids. I mean, like, like five and six year olds would call us names, flip us middle fingers. I mean, one point they even spray paint. It was, it was shocking how these kids completely disrespected us. And you could really tell that they had been taught to distrust us no matter. So, so more than once I'd have young minority kids or teens that I'd be dealing with and they would run away from me. They would apparently no reason at all. I'd be just trying to figure out what had happened in the circumstances or, or to make sure everybody was okay. Sure. Um, you know, not even when a crime had been committed. And it was really just, it was demoralizing to me and to many of the officers I worked with to know that this community we were trying to protect and keep safe just really despised us. Now, where do you so, think that, where do you think that despising or that mistrust, where do you think that comes from? Did you ever, did you guys ever talk about that? Did you try to figure that out? Oh, well, um, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, I think we, it was, it was commonly accepted and just understood that's mm -hmm. how it was. Mm -hmm. But, and it was definitely, it was definitely seen as being something that was passed down from generation to generation, mm -hmm. um, something cultural that just kind of stayed alive and well in these specific communities, um, that something that wasn't normal in, you know, most of the communities that we were coming from. Well, I, I see, mean, I, it certainly. Right. And that's sorry, the, go ahead. No, no, that's the challenge, Dr. Swan, is I think that what happens is even in a case like this where the grand jury comes back, like you said, there were nine whites, three blacks, they, they came back with this decision to say, we are not going to indict. But that's not really the issue. The issue is what you said. There's a systemic generational mistrust of certain communities with law enforcement, and we've got to figure out what to do about that if we're really going to move forward. Otherwise, these things are going to keep happening, and it's going to continue to poke at that open wound that is there. Dr. Swan, thank you so much for being with us. Listen, I, I appreciate you taking time on your, your vacation. Have a great Thanksgiving. Enjoy the snow up there. You're out in Colorado, aren't you? Yes. Yes. Well, have a great time. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, God bless. Thanks for having me. Happy Thanksgiving. Absolutely. Dr. Angie Swan, professor of criminal justice at Grand Canyon University, former police officer, and also an Air Force reservist, as am I. So I might add that. Now, listen, as I said before, everyone wants to analyze this and to point the finger and to figure out what happened. But the fact of the matter is, is that they really aren't offering a whole lot of solutions. And I think the reason is because it's very hard to have any solutions when you approach things from the way that you do. And so all the media can do, to be honest with you, is to sit back, largely like a bunch of bloodthirsty sharks, and bait the hook. You know what I mean? Fan the flames of anger and revenge and bitterness and call it justice. And I sit there and I look at the TV and I go, is it justice when a man loses his business? Is it justice when cars are set on fire? Is it justice when people are, are running from gunfire? Is that justice? So the media have no solution. And the political shows, they largely have no solution either because the solution is not political. Activists have no solution because activism is not the solution. 
And that's why this show is so important. You know, like right now, I feel like as we introduced the apologetic smackdown last week, I almost feel like we should bring that back. But the mood doesn't call for it today. The only solution I want to offer you in the remainder of this program is five words from Jesus Christ, which every person in America, I think at this moment, when you watch the news, needs to get down on their knees in humility and just say, God, I need help with this. I confess that I don't do this. I don't know quite how to do this, but I need to believe that it's true and it should be the number one priority for me, especially as I look at what's happening on the news and I gauge my own reaction. And it's five words from Jesus that simply say this, love your neighbor as yourself. And I would add no exceptions, no exclusions. My friends, Christianity is the only hope for Ferguson. It is the only hope for racial tension. You know, one website that, um, that our station owner here showed me that looked, compares the tweets of, of uh, both sides of the issue, people that were for the, uh, the decision and against the decision, who were in support of Officer Wilson, those in support of Michael Brown, and they were comparing, they were saying that, that they were showing that the great divide in our nation and how even when people talk to each other, it's not always helpful because the words they're using are so hurtful and so divisive, even in themselves. And so this solution is very simple, that every single one of us needs to look at the TV screen today and ask ourselves, am I really loving my neighbor? Not only your white neighbor if you're white, not only your black neighbor if you are black, not only your rich neighbor if you are rich, and not only your poor neighbor if you are poor. You love your neighbor. You know what's amazing to me is in the scripture, when that whole dialogue happens between Jesus and the Pharisee, and they identify the fact that loving your neighbor is the supreme command, along with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, the Pharisee says, who is my neighbor? And right then, Jesus goes into the story and the, par the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a racially charged story because it presents the hero as someone who is radically different than the Pharisee himself. And I love the genius of Jesus there because it forces us to identify with the fact that all of us have a serious log in our eye when it comes to this issue. But Christianity has within it the the DNA of reconciliation. And we've got to be confident in that. And we have to rise above the inaccuracies of those who would say that Christianity is the cause of racism. So when the Tower of Babel happens in the book of Genesis, right? You remember that story? And God confused the languages of everyone. And people go their separate ways and cultures develop separately and races develop separately. And this goes on, obviously, for, for centuries. But then you get to the New Testament, and this amazing thing happens called the Day of Pentecost, where the tongues of fire fall on everyone's heads. Now, what's so significant about that is that the tongues of fire rest on the heads of the people, and it causes them to speak in languages. Now, catch this, that the foreigners around them could understand. You see, what, what the Tower of Babel broke, the Holy Spirit of God fixed. At the, on the day of Pentecost. And that's so significant to the narrative, to the story of our faith, of Christianity, that through the Holy Spirit of God, reconciliation is possible. 
but it's going to take the power of God. Because right now we're still living in that Tower of Babel where everyone's going our separate ways and everyone's talking over each other and you just aren't understanding what the other person is saying. Am I wrong? Do you believe that the ultimate solution is loving your neighbor as yourself? Give me a call. Call me at 602-368-3776. This is Tim Jacobs, Life 360 with Tim Jacobs. And I'm here to try to tell you that, you guys, we've got to learn how to love our neighbors as ourselves. And can I tell you what it is? Part of loving your neighbor means seeking to understand. And that means asking the question, what does it feel like to be this person? So can I just get real with you guys for a second? I'm a white guy. If in case you hadn't known, in case you aren't tuning in on the Ustream and you can see me live, I'm a white guy. And I grew up in a largely white neighborhood in a suburb of Los Angeles, California. And I had a father in the home. And I didn't have a perfect life, but I had a lot of things going for me, okay? And I can tell you that I could make judgments about other people, but I can honestly tell you I don't know what it's like to be born in an African-American neighborhood, in a part of the country with a history of racism built into the walls that you, that you can still hear it ringing. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to be told ever since I was a child that the white man is out to get me or the police are out to get me. As Angie was sharing earlier, Professor Swan was talking about this, uh, this deeply generational rootedness in some of the communities that she served in as a police officer. I don't know what it's like to be told to fear the police because I was a target. But I can only imagine if I were since the beginning of time in my life that that would probably front load a sense of resentment into my heart to where that would be all that I would know. And I'd have to figure out a way to break out of that, but it wouldn't be easy because I know how much I hate injustice and I know how much I hate unfairness. And I remember my mom, she would say to me, because we talk about these issues, and she'd say, Tim, if you grew up in that world, you would have been an angry guy yourself because you are an angry guy. You're a passionate guy, and you would have not have put up with some of the things that these guys have had to put up with if you went through the same injustice, and the same injustices that many of our African-American friends had endured. And the problem is, guys, I see my white friends on social media saying, you know, get over it. It's over. This is, this, this is the justice system. Deal with it. And I'm thinking, okay, fine, guys, but you're not learning the lesson. The larger lesson here is there's a huge segment of our society that sees the world differently than you do. And part of loving your neighbor is maybe just to ask why. Maybe just to sit back and listen and ask why. Now, it doesn't justify the looting and the idiotic criminal behavior as people are destroying businesses and schools are fo forced to close and people are running home to try to stay away from the danger. It doesn't justify any of that activity. And it doesn't mean we, that people have to apologize for being a part of something that they weren't a part of. It simply means to ask the question, what does it feel like to be you? That's a question that white people need to ask African-Americans who have grown up in a community like Ferguson. But it's also a question that African-Americans need to ask a police officer who puts on a uniform and a badge every single day and goes into a community where they know they are disliked and they know they are distrusted, and it goes way further back than their own actions. 
than their own entry into that police force. And they need to ask, what is it like to go into a situation where I'm working the night shift and it could be the last night of my life? I could leave my children and my wife could be widowed tonight. What does that feel like? And so before we, t- we, we spend all this time talking, we have to stop and listen, because part of love is just taking the time to listen. Ed Stetzer, who writes on ChristianityToday.com in The Exchange, has some great series of articles on Ferguson. You should go there and you should read that. But one of the things that he tried to do is, is do that very thing and listen. And he quotes Pastor Leonce, or Leonce Crump from Renovation Church, who's an evangelical African-American pastor. And he writes this. He says, I'm six foot five. I weigh 270 pounds. I've been called imposing. The police have stopped me both walking and driving nearly once a year since I was 15 years old, though I may have been asked to leave my vehicle, thrown to the ground and against my vehicle, interrogated, frisked, and cuffed on these occasions. I have not been cited, not once. And he goes on to say, until you feel the humiliation of this moment, particularly as a decent, civilized, educated black, yes, that's an actual quote of someone referred to me once, this is what he's saying, behind my back, then you cannot say that it is an anomaly. You cannot say that someone was just doing his or her job. Now, I have to listen to a man like that who says he is of the same faith as I am. He reads the same Bible that I do. He lives in the same country that I do, but has a vastly different experience than I do. I have to listen to him, and I have to take what he's saying at face value and say, okay, that's a problem. Now let's talk about how do we fix that? What do we do about that? And before I sit there and go, you know what? You just need to rise above it. You just need to get over it. Maybe I can listen a little bit more. And it goes both ways. And so on this edition of Life 360 with Tim Jacobs, we are seeing a schism that's still there. And you know, here's the thing, guys. It's going to go away, and the violence is going to taper off, and it's going to go back to business as usual. But that doesn't mean the problem has been solved. Christian, I want to ask you, do you love your neighbor? We've got to be doing it. And there's no exclusions. There are no exceptions. You've got to be looking at everyone around you and saying, God is telling me, I have got to love that person. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Guys, if you call yourself a Christian, you have got to be on the front line of what it means to bring reconciliation. And that does not mean being silent, and that does not mean closing the front door and locking it and backing away from the rest of the world. I believe deeply that Christianity is the only hope that this world has. And I hope that you, right now, if you're listening, and you're in your car, you're driving home, and you're going to watch the news, you're going to say, those people have a real problem. Guess what? The problem is not just those people. The problem is all of us. And I want to be able to look at my African-American brother and sister. And I want to look at my Hispanic brother and sister and say, listen, I'm not going to own what I didn't do. But you know what I'm going to do? And I'm not going to call something injustice or justice. That, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to listen to you. And can we just talk? And here's the thing. You go first. <laughs> right? We're going to talk. And guess what? You go first. And I'm not going to interrupt you. I'm going to listen. And we'll see 
if we can actually get somewhere. Because, guys, it's not going to be a law. It's not going to be a movement. It's going to be individual people, one by one, engaging others and saying, I am in just as much need of grace as you. We all come to Jesus as criminals, don't we? All right, listen. Stay strong. Keep depending on Jesus. Live life to the fullest. And I will see you next week on what will be a better day here in Phoenix. And we are always hoping for a better day. God bless you. I'm Tim Jacobs. You've been listening to Life 360 with Tim Jacobs. Make sure you follow Tim on Facebook.com slash Pastor Tim Jacobs or on Twitter at Tim G. Jacobs. Join us again next week at 4 p.m. as we cross the intersection of faith and life, gospel and culture, and get all we can out of the life God has given. This is Pastor Bill Alexander, right at the Synagogue of Praise Christian Church. I want to invite you to join me every